Hello everyone, welcome to that food podcast. I am the killer of pineapple upside down cake stew and I'm joined as always by my good friend Matt. Matt, how are you doing this week? I'm good, probably better than your uh, your cake effort. <laughs> oh my days, I mean we'll, we'll get to it in the podcast but if you're looking for a food hell instance... I mean, I'm. I was a, a loss for words as we're as we'll get to. I still haven't recovered from it. I I mentioned in a tweet to uh, on, on on our socials that I consider myself a very competent cook, but this this was possible. One of the worst things I've done since I made a terrible vegetable stew using a veg box that even my wife didn't touch. Um, outrageous times. It it didn't look good, Stu. To be honest, um, I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, and uh, also, you know, we'll get to a little bit into some food marketing later as well, Stu. So this week I've been looking at some uh, potential pitfalls of uh, food marketing and labelling and what the food companies really mean by low fat, no added sugar and that buzziest of buzzwords, uh, superfood as well. I'm sure we've all heard of that one. Um, but I'll uh, get into that towards the end of today's episode. Um, other than that, um, other than admiring your uh, efforts with your pineapple <laughs> upside down cake, I've been giving myself a uh, bit of a crash course in the art of food video making. Um, hopefully you've seen that on social media, Stu. I've put up a little uh, demo oh, of yeah. the upside down uh, pineapple cake. Um, so you can actually check that out on our new uh, Facebook and Instagram pages, which is now at that food pod. Is that right, Stu? We've changed up a bit, haven't we? That's right, yeah. On the subject of food marketing, we have gone across all the social media platforms, got a uniformed name, so wherever you want to search for us, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we are now at That Food Pod. Uh, give us an ad, give us a follow, uh, you'll see some of the dishes we create. And most importantly as well, as you're listening to us on your podcast app of choice, if you like what we do, make sure you give us a five-star review. It really helps on the algorithms and helps us to be found. And again, we've been really really happy with the the number of listeners across literally across the world we've got different countries people all over listening to us ramble on about our food things and the feedback's been really nice i spoke to one of my friends um she's on the verge of moving to dubai and you know she's a couple of episodes behind but she likes the information that we give she likes cooking the dishes she likes hearing that i have to cook backup meals for my child who will refuse to eat things not this week though she ate everything eventually uh, <laughs> You've blown my question already. I was going to ask that. That's my big, uh, my big question at the end. Does Harriet like it? <laughs> Does a three-year-old like cake? <laughs> Silly question. Um, and yeah, hopefully your friend will jump over to Facebook and Instagram and um, check us out on there. And just going back to the video, I just I really want to point out that I'm not a video editor, <laughs> but I am pretty happy with how it turned out with the uh, the little demo of the pineapple upside down cake. Um, but hasn't received enough love on the socials yet. So go check us out on That Food Podcast and give it some love, uh, make some comments, etc. Um, make my time worthwhile, please. <laughs> so have along with doing excellent video editing, even though you're not a video editor, I think it looks really, really professional from my standpoint. And it's not the sort of thing that you would see out of place if you're scrolling down sort of your social media pages and you see these videos of people creating them. So it, it is of the same level as those. So I consider those quite professional. So it's a good job. Have you been cooking anything else this week? Obviously, none of our designated recipe. What's been your cooking highlight of the week? Oh, my highlight for sure was uh, we did a World Food Club. Um, a second one in the space of a 
two weeks really uh we went to thailand my wife and i in a again virtual culinary sense uh, must put out there covid 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 um we went to thailand which was actually where we went to um, on our honeymoon in 2015 so we re-experienced some of the tastes and flavors that we tried out there uh, including tom yum soup uh, which i actually rechristened mat yum soup because i kind of bodged the recipe a little bit to suit my tastes <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> my wife also uh, attempted to make spring rolls from scratch using phyllo pastry, uh, which I must admit weren't the prettiest looking things. I say that quietly in case she hears me, but they were delicious, um, really nice, very very good. Like, the fillings were, were lovely, um, and of course uh, the national dish chicken uh, pad thai. And then to finish, we had sticky rice and mango, which was delicious. Never had that before. Not even worse for out there, actually. So it's like a sweet rice, almost like um, uh, uh, rice pudding that we might have in the UK, um, but with mango on top as well. And yeah, Mm -mm -mm. real good. How about you, Stu? Um, I haven't really been as active this week. I've had quite a busy work week, including for the first time this year, um, I delved into having a takeaway well, I well, sort of take away that uh, my daughter decided out of the blue, she woke up in the morning and said, Daddy, tonight we should have Savaloy and chips from the fish and chip shop. And I was like, ooh, ooh. Savaloy and chips. That's a good That's idea. a result. So I had a, a Savaloy chips and a pea fritter from my local chip shop down by the beach, which was lovely. Oh, very nice. I've never had a pea fritter before. Uh, no. Describe, please. Uh, basically, mushy peas covered in batter fried yum <laughs> very very tasty i like all those things <laughs> my wife had a spam fritter it was the size of our daughter's head <laughs> Ooh, nice so our usual order from a chip shop would be um portion chips obviously a battered cod as well even though probably not great for the environment but sorry about that guys and the uh a battered sausage as well and that's kind of our go-to oh plus don't forget a side of curry sauce so yeah see i had curry sauce with my chips as well it was excellent i think you've got to have curry sauce with chips oh yes absolutely good choice and um, it's not the same nowadays if we don't have curry sauce and actually i know um it's a few months away but we are both fans of and do we say this out loud we are fans of the eurovision song contest oh yes and fish and chips is usually our go-to meal um when we watch that show so we love the campness of it and um yeah it's so so unbelievably european with all the euro pop and all that sort of stuff um so our go-to meal on that evening is to grab uh fish and chips from the local fish and chip shop uh sit there and eat that and enjoy the entertainment uh see so yeah, we i think Provided the roadmap for unlocking things is available, we have a staycation booked in Dorset. So I think we're away again. I think my wife deliberately does it for Eurovision so she doesn't have to have people around the house. Because she doesn't listen to this podcast. She might occasionally share it. She definitely won't listen to it. So I think it's her way of not having to socialise on Eurovision. Yeah, interesting. I should say that my wife doesn't listen to this podcast either. And she says that it's because... You know, it's a thing that you do, leave it to you, you enjoy it, you know, you go talk to your friend about food. Um, but I think it's probably a polite way of saying that I hear your voice enough, I don't want to hear it anymore, <laughs> directly plugged into my ears. Um, but uh, it's nice that you're going away um, again this year if you're able to. Uh, but we did perhaps have plans for a bit of a Eurovision party, but we'll have we to say that for another year. I was I was anticipating the uh, that my holiday would be postponed and or cancelled. 
but I was thinking well, we might be allowed in garden, so I was planning to wheel the telly out into the back garden so we could watch it with a barbecue or something, but if the holiday doesn't get cancelled... I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm very much looking forward to my es- escape, but as we said before, if things change, there's no point going to sit in a house somewhere else where you can't do anything. But I did also manage to cook one other dish this week, which was Coca-Cola chicken. Oh, okay. In it, essentially, it's using the Coca-Cola to give more of a sticky glaze, a Diet Coke to give a sticky glaze to the chicken, uh, a few spices in there, a few vegetables mixed in there to make the sauce, reduce it down, really, really tasty, and again, served with my current rice substitute of cauliflower rice, which was very, very tasty, um, but definitely have it again. So I've always liked cooking with Coca-Cola. I used to do a Coca-Cola ham at Christmas, so it's interesting to do it with chicken, but it made it, you know, stickiness, sweetness added to it. Very, very nice. Quite not pleasant to look at, but very tasty to eat. I've had experience with um, not cooking, but eating uh, with Coke uh, and Pepsi, in fact. And so I had a Coca-Cola ham uh, one Christmas, which was cooked by uh, a good friend of ours, Jono. And that was that was nice. Uh, really nice, in fact. I love that. Um, and... I've also had a Pepsi pizza, which I found in the supermarket, which at the time seemed like a good idea. However, upon cooking and eating it, uh, not so much. It was, it was horrible, to be honest. It was really sweet and, and, and mm, no, not for me. No, thank you. Not again. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. So, I mean, I know like Pepsi and Coke, and they've all tried to deviate into these different markets and flavors and then obviously trying to increase your brand their branding by being integrated into other products and other foods but yeah i think it's from my standpoint cooking with coke or pepsi or something like that to to add some degree of sweetness or stickiness to cooking is fine if you're having a coke float it's integral to having that so coke scoop full of ice cream in a coke float very very nice but i think having it in some form of pizza probably not for me it's interesting you should mention Coke floats. So my wife is from the northeast of England. I'm from the southwest of England, and you're obviously from the southeast, Stu. Um, and I get the impression it's a different dialect for same food. So a Coke float in the north, and I'm trying to remember what it is now, but it's, I think it's like a cream float or something. I'll have to double check and maybe uh, put that up on the socials at some point. But, yeah, it seems like a different dialect for basically the same thing. Um yeah, I just think that's interesting. And again, we sort of look at a little bit about the history and dialects with food, uh, which we'll get to a little bit about the uh, with the pineapple upside down cake as well, which you've done some research on. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Uh, speaking of research, um, is it time for food and news? Oh, yes. Well, my dear listener and good friend, Matt, here we go for food in the news. Were you aware that there is a food based event occurring this week? I no, I, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Go on. So today, running well, started early this week. Running from the first to the seventh of March, it is a food waste action week, and this is being delivered through um, the environmental charity RAP, um, who also handle the uh, quite well-known Love Food Hate Waste brand, in an attempt to try and mitigate the impacts of food waste on the planet. And they've teamed up with uh, Cook TV presenter and author Nadia Hussein uh, to get the message out there. So the aim of the awareness of this campaign, um, which is, I'd like to say, once I've looked at this and looked through some more of the social media, there is, you know, a 
a little bit of support. There's a little bit of uh, information about this, but it hasn't been overly well promoted. So it wasn't anywhere that I've seen her doing interviews that I've come across um, as of yet. I don't know if she was on any of the cooking programs over the weekend to promote it. But basically, as we've touched on on one of our previous episodes of the podcast, it's trying to hit home and raise awareness that UK households produce around 70% of the UK's 9.5 million tonnes of food waste every year. So the aim of the campaign is to encourage everyone this week to have no edible food waste going in the bin. And I was starting to look down again more of the stats, and I know we covered some of these uh, previously, but... In total, a staggering 6.6 million tonnes of food waste comes from our homes in the UK, which is basically a cost of £14 billion in the UK. And of that, 4.5 million tonnes of that food could have been eaten, which works out around about eight meals per household per week. So these edible elements are responsible for 14 tonnes of CO2e alone, which is as much greenhouse gas produced from frying from London to Perth more than 4.5 million times. That's insane, isn't it? And what a waste. Uh, So Nadia Hussein of Great British Bake Off fame, isn't it? Um, Yes. I I didn't watch any cooking programmes over the weekend, admittedly, so I haven't seen her on there. But she's done some amazing things since winning that competition. Um, she is popping up on all sorts of programs. I saw her on the Graham Norton show a few weeks ago. Um, I think must have been probably long enough ago to make this information not relevant for her not to announce it then. Um, but in terms of marketing for this campaign, I've not seen anything about it, which just by proxy of being on a food podcast, I do follow a lot of food channels and things like that, and uh, I haven't seen that at all. But those figures that you mentioned there, just made a few notes here, uh, are staggering. And it's such a shame as well, isn't it? Because that food could go to use elsewhere, like you say, make meals for other people. Um, And I I think as we mentioned in the pod a couple of weeks ago, it's just thinking about our own actions in the kitchen and uh, food that we throw away and just being a bit more mindful of what we do with it. Uh, I, I, again, mentioned... Um, after doing some of this research and Amy's very keen on this anyway but just minimising food waste and how we can action that more and it's something I've been a lot more mindful of Uh, for example I made a suet ball for uh, the bird feeder out of some uh, beef dripping that we had left over from cooking a uh, a beef dish Um, and that's gone down really well with the birds outside so it's just kind of like think of a bigger picture as well it's not just about not throwing it away or uh, leaving it for leftovers, but just other uses for it as well. And one of the interesting things about the research that they're trying to promote as part of this weekly campaign, so Rep's research have found that while 81% of the people in the UK are concerned about climate change, less than a third, so 32% of these people, uh, only less than a third see the clear link between f- a climate change and food waste. So this compares to over half who would link the link, link aviation and climate change together. So the fact that global food waste produce more greenhouse emissions than all commercial flights is, is astounding. But what they've tried to do here as part of this campaign, and they've released sort of some quite informative bullet points, which I think if it was more in the public media um, and it, more in the public eye, would one, help people save and be a bit more resourceful with their leftovers. 
Uh, and to just be more aware of, again, some of the actions they have. So, as we said, 30% of greenhouse gases come from producing food, which is more than all commercial flights. And if food waste was a country, it would have the third biggest carbon footprint after the USA and China, hmm. which is astronomical if you think f- as a carbon footprint. It's ridiculous. And then it goes on to some more shocking stats, which... Um, it gets so worse. You, oh, it, well, so, some of these, when you put it in the figures, is astronomical already, how much food we waste. I'm already shocked, Stu, but go on. Give so me more. If, <laughs> <laughs> so if every UK household stopped wasting food for one day a week, it would do the same for greenhouse gas emissions as planting 640,000 trees per day. So that's around 230 million trees a year. Almost 280 tonnes of poultry goes to waste in the UK every single day. So again, if we stop wasting poultry, we could do the same for climate change as planting nearly 6.6 million trees every year. Guys, if you've got leftover chicken and it's still in date, bang it in the freezer. Defrost it in the morning, cook it again. You don't need to waste poultry, any form of poultry. Oh, my yeah. word. It's crazy. Yeah, and, al- and also... Um make stocks like we we use the chicken carcass to make a stock a chicken stock and it's fine it's great chuck this uh chuck the chicken carcass in with any other like fatty bits grisly bits that there are and cover it with water add some onions herbs like just look up a recipe online it's really easy let it boil for a few hours and strain it and bang you're done you've got a lovely stock and you can make a nice soup And I've only got a few more, but this is the stat that got me the most, even though these have all been quite shocking. According to RAP's research, we throw away the equivalent of 3.1 million glasses of milk every day. Wow. 3.1 million glasses of milk. Every day. This is sickening, isn't it, almost? Um, But I think, as you've already touched on, it is, and it should be government-led to make the general public more aware. A lot of times... And, you know, just the fact that we weren't aware of what well, you found out, but I wasn't aware of this campaign exists kind of proves a point that these things need to be put out there more. It needs to be in the media more. Um, and it should be government led and media led. Um, the unfortunate truth is, and I know from talking to friends of a similar age to us in our sort of mid 30s, not to give too much away, <laughs> but we, <laughs> um, yeah, they, they don't know or quite often don't care, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's always that kind of thought process that actually the next generation can deal with that. That's, you know, it's not for me to worry about. But no, 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 it's it's already pushing towards being too late. So, I mean, this isn't hopefully, we don't want it to be a preachy pod, but it's good information and something that everyone should consider for sure. I've been reading recently about how farmers are pressured into producing, you know, tons of crops and tons of animals each year and actually i think we're well i don't think i know um reading some of the stats on this that we're overproducing in fact so all these farmers having pressure to over farm and you know which in turn degrades the soil uh, and the land around and actually we don't really need it a lot of it's getting chucked away and it's such a such a shame Well, it's interesting you should mention farming because that's going to be the final piece of food news. But I do have two more stats from this, uh, which again, just to drum it home. Every day, we waste 4.4 million potatoes in the UK and also 20 million slices of bread are thrown away in the home in the UK every day. Guys, freeze your bread. 
If you've got a loaf and you let's say you live alone, you've got a loaf of bread, bang it in the freezer. Take out the bread. If you're going to toast it, it stays in the toaster, no problem at all. If you're going to have it for a sandwich, just take it out, lean it, leave it standing up against each other on the worktop. It's going to be defrosted within like a matter of minutes anyway for you to be able to do what you need to do. 20 million slices of bread. But if you want to take part in this challenge, uh, you can use the hashtag food waste action challenge to show people what you're doing as part of this week. And you can also on Instagram and Twitter, you go and follow LFHW underscore UK. So that's love food, hate waste, the UK for tips on storing food, using leftovers and making sure none of your food ends up in the bin. And it does say that food waste action week has the support of all UK governments and partner organizations across the UK, which would be really nice if we could see more government agencies and more media outlets pushing something like this campaign because someone especially with Nadia you know supporting it it's a great face to have the campaign because as you said she does some fantastic things for the environment for community for food in general and I think it's something that people can get on board with as I said if you're thinking I'm going to tip that glass of milk away same thing we do in our house so we give our daughter a glass of milk in the morning if she doesn't drink it or wastes it my wife just uses it in her tea we put a bit of cling film over it or i pour it on cereal if i'm going to have cereal for breakfast it doesn't get wasted we buy it we you know rather than because we don't want to take lots and lots of trips to the shop and again as we're lucky enough to have the space to do it we've got a couple of bottles of milk in the freezer we defrost it we use it and i know some people go oh well it doesn't taste the same and i'm not going to disagree with you if you defrost milk it doesn't taste as good as if you're just drinking it fresh out of the bottle but if you have to buy in bulk you can't go out of the shop, rather than tipping away four pints of a six-pint thing of milk, freeze it. Or put it down into you know different size containers, freeze away, take it out and defrost. But as we said, farming into a more interesting element. So a lot of tech companies have been in the news uh, over the last week regarding the technology they're using to increase farming. So like Matt mentioned, a lot of farmers are being pressured and it's leading into over-farming giving produce of things that we don't need. But there are some companies around the world who are trying to make a difference and use technology to help farmers and therefore in turn help the environment. So in Queensland, there is a farm who have been working with a company called Sears Tag, which is a Brisbane-based firm behind technology. And what they do is behind each ear of um, one of their cows, they each carry a device roughly the size of a matchbox, a tamper-proof, solar-powered, satellite-connected smart tag that's constantly transmitting real-time data back to the farmer. So Sears Tags, uh, the Brisbane company, have developed a sophisticated algorithm, things like pasture feed intake, so that the farmers can know what the feed is efficient, what, what the feed is efficiency is in the animal. So then we can start then they can start making genetic selections and having a look at what they're doing. The tag also monitors things like rechewing or uh, uh, or levels and other health and fitness factors. And I just thought things like this is going to be a real benefit for farming, especially where so many industries are starting to use things like big data and AI. You know, we've seen autonomous harvesting robots and drones that can do all the crop spraying to remove that human interaction, especially during COVID, where we've had people who can't go out to farm a cloak of proximity you know we're not saying that we want to get the end of you know human farming because it's an integral it's a very manually important to have that farmer's relationship with their farm with their crop with their cattle but the ability to then focus down on things like precision farming is leading into a booming industry and one report suggested that the global value of um, agricultural technology is going to reach 
$12.9 billion, which is, I think, about the equivalent of £9.1 billion, pounds, by 2027, with the annual growth of this about 13% between now and then. And it's incredible some of the things they're doing. So obviously, as we said, we've seen drones and bits of bobs like that. But looking at uh, developing countries like um, in West Africa, where you've got um, Benin, where one of their largest exports is things like cashews, and it accounts for about 8% of the country's export earnings. There's a company called TechnoServe, which is helping farmers identify where it's best to plant their trees to increase both the quantity and the quality of their yields. So they've already got plans to replicate this project now across West Africa and in Mozambique. So the use of technology to, again, help developing nations really sort of drum in on enhancing the quality and quantity of these stocks if needed to help those developing nations. It's such an interesting time for technology. Yeah, this is good stuff. So something I'm definitely interested in is this uh, tech side of things and how uh, I saw the other day um, how they kind of like stack food to grow in levels as opposed to so making better use of space oh is um, this up the, the the vertical farms they call yeah, them vertical the farm, that's it yes i couldn't i couldn't think of the uh, the name um so yeah farming vertically as opposed to obviously in a sort of a, a straight line as you would traditionally in fields um so you have like stacks of trays uh at the most layman's term um growing various crops in them um so you've got your taking advantage of 3d space so you can kind of grow up and out as opposed to just yeah that flat sort of linear line something else that interests me uh with this subject and it's a form of technology to an extent but actually breeding um the cows which are less likely to emit methane so the digestive system of cows uh a byproduct of that is methane which is one of the biggest contributors towards uh, co2 and greenhouse gases um, so they're looking at how to selectively breed certain cattle to emit less methane which is again a, a progression of technology in farming which hopefully will go uh, some way towards making a bit of a greener impact uh, on the food industry and as, as you mentioned, again, with these vertical farms, so again, looking at some of the, uh, the news articles where they've been drilling down into um, agricultural technology, um, there's a US firm called Plenty, and they utilize UI and software to create these scalable indoor vertical farms. And they essentially grow multiple vegetable crops on tall walls. And the aim of this is to relieve pressure on traditional farming as a lot of the available agricultural land goes down as the world's population and the demand for food continues to rise. And with the world's population expected to increase from about 7.7 .7 billion currently to 9.7 billion in 2050, according to the UN, using this idea of vertical farming to make sure we've got sustainable, eco-friendly crops that are you know farmed in humane and ethical and you know environmentally safe ways it's really encouraging to see that people are taking this seriously and it's interesting to see a lot of these companies these tech companies involved in agriculture at the moment especially the ones who are funding the projects in in africa they're all not for profit so it's really nice to see that it's a case of these highly skilled technologically advanced businesses and people are realizing that they're trying to make a difference so as you said so it's not the next generation's responsibility to do it 
they're trying to use technology to make the world a better place. And I, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I know people are very, very dubious of computers, AI, technology in the, you know, because we don't want to have like an iRobot situation where essentially <laughs> we are all n- null and void out of jobs because <laughs> we've been replaced by a computer. But I think the use of this to start helping us be more sensible with our farming, maintaining those sustainable supplies, not over farming, I think it can only be a good thing. And I, it's interesting to see how this develops in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, actually. It's kind of uh, alleviated my concerns over this slightly because if you look at the two stories that we've just had next to to each other there, there's a potential for them to contradict slightly because we're looking at the um, overuse of crops or too many crops being grown, and then we're looking at how to grow more crops through technology. However, because I was going to be sceptical and say, is this a way to drive more money into the industry to make lots of people very rich or and it's something to think about consider or is it a genuinely you know out of the kindness of their own heart situation where there is a concern and it's something that needs to be addressed so uh yeah even though they contradict slightly um it's good that it's not necessarily for profit at the moment it does make me think that I would have preferred to have some degree of technology helping me with my pineapple upside down cake because I think a robot might have been able to do a better <laughs> job of what ended up being uh, my situation. Yeah. So, so if you listened to last week's pod, you would have heard that it was my recipe choice and I chose Nigella's uh, pineapple upside down cake. Now, interestingly, we have promoted this quite heavily on our social media platforms at that food pod. And you notice today that Nigella's recipe of the day just so happens to be her pineapple upside down cake recipe. It is. Yeah, so I had a quick uh, flick through Twitter before coming and recording this with you today, uh, Stu. And uh, yeah, I couldn't help but notice that was her. So she does a recipe of the day uh, every day on Twitter. And it just so happens that our recipe of the week is her recipe of the day today. So uh, we did tag her in some of the posts that we've been doing this week uh, to promote uh, the dish. So possibly our pod has uh, creeped into her subconsciousness somehow. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for listening, Nigella. (laughs) (laughs) Big fan, big fan. Now, I didn't know when looking at this recipe and when I started doing some of my research into the history of the pineapple upside down cake, I didn't realise that in America, apparently... On the 20th of April, it's National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day. I didn't even know it had its no. own day. So I was devastated that I've, I've gone about a month and a half too early for this. But as you said, did you know much about the history of the Pineapple Upside Down Cake before we chose to do it? Other than the fact it seems to be like a, a mid-90s uh, sort of, sorry, mid-1900s dish. So starting like the 1950s, 1960s, like a classic uh, cake dish, a sign of potential wealth with the use of this exotic fruit pineapple? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I'm aware of it. Um, it's, again, it's got that sort of retro feel about it, hasn't it? A bit nostalgic, I suppose. Um, but I have never tried it. I've never cooked it. I had this impression that it was particularly difficult to cook as well for some reason, um, which you may have proven that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I have no idea. I I knew that you had done a little bit of research on this one. So to be completely honest, I let myself off on this one and uh, let you take me for a ride on the information. 
Okay, so the origins through what I have researched, the pineapple up down cake backdate, once unsurprisingly, hundreds of years, where people would cook on cast iron skillets on open fires. So when they wanted a sweet treat, they'd line the bottom of the pan with fruit, pour the batter over the top, and when the cake's ready, they'd flip it over to get the caramelized fruit on the top. And it seems that this dates back to sort of um, to the Americas. So um, early Americas would use the cast iron skillets with legs on the bottom to make these cakes over these open fires. And as the skillets were called spiders, these cakes were first originally known as spider cakes. As technology advanced and home ovens became a reality um, and a mainstay in everyone's kitchens, um, people transitioned to the flat bottom cast iron skillets um, and it sort of developed this new way of baking because there'd be no way for the, uh, the spider cakes. But they still use the same methodology to cook these in the oven. Well, in the very early 1900s, James Dole, who was the founder of a company called the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, now known as Dole, Yes, I've heard of them. Created the way to can pineapples. So before it was quite difficult to obtain pineapples, but now you could get them in a tin, they became readily available, and it's made its way into more and more homes. And at that point, that's when the pineapple upside-down cake was born. Now, Uh. in about 1925, uh, in some of the research I found... It's, I, have, I haven't found this across the board or confirmed, but there seems to be a lot of conjecture that in 1925, James Dole um, prepared, uh, created a competition for people to create dishes using pineapple. So where it's now readily available and it's in a tin or in a can, um, that's how people started, therefore, replacing the fruit that they'd used before t- to create these spider cakes to create pineapple upside-down cakes, and that's how it was born. So that's where it came from. And obviously people have developed the recipes, enhanced and the recipes, added their own twists. So I found some people um, in the Washington, D.C. area who put a tropical twist on their menus. So some people add uh, rum to their cakes. They use brown sugar to get a deep, uh, an even more caramelized topping on it. But basically it started on an open fire on a spider skillet with any fruit. James Dole came along. I found a way to tin and can pineapples to make it more readily available and thus was the birth in the early 1900s of the pineapple upside down cake that's that's good stuff so james dole it was a bit of a marketing campaign for his company then and his new invention is that right yeah i think so so obviously if the uh if the findings regarding this competition to get recipes for pineapple what a great marketing drive. Hello, Americans. I've created this company. Send in your recipes for what you can do pineapple for, and we'll tell you who's the winner. At the same time, probably taking all licensing and uh, rights to any recipe that's sent in as part of the competition and creating a, a, lovely, um, a lovely cookbook based on pineapple, which is obviously where we go from for today's recipe, which is Nigella's Pineapple Upside Down Cake. And again, if as you've probably seen from her Twitter, this is taken from the Nigella Express book from 2007. Um, your first experiences of cooking a pineapple upside down cake. Again, you can actually watch Matt's efforts on our video on our social media platforms at That Food Pod. Great video, great presentation, but was it a great cake? I enjoyed it. It was great, yeah. So I've never made it before. Uh, have you? Street never, makers. never before. This is the first time I've done this. Now, 
I consider myself, I said, a pretty decent cook. But when it comes to baking, I've not been blessed in the past with a very consistent oven. I think there are some cold spots and hot spots in my previous house. Whereas in my current home, I think everything so far has been quite good. So I was very excited to be able to get this pineapple upside down cake uh, done and dusted. Now, one of the things I noticed about this recipe as we went through it, and it was something different to what you used in your um, in your um, your video, that we have to, the instructions suggest that you use a food processor to make the batter. And I was like, I've not used food processor to... Uh, to make the batter before but i did this time but i noticed that you did not was that uh, a choice or was it that was a necessi- uh, necessity actually we don't have a food presser processor i always say food presser i have to put more uh syllables in. <laughs> food processor um we don't have one large enough to be able to facilitate uh the mixing of bat- batter so i just did it the old-fashioned way put it in a bowl and stirred it up so you tried it with the food presser do you processor God. um <laughs> sorry guys uh, so did you find or do you think that may have caused issues or no i mean if anything it was i i see it as the lazy man's way to make cake better because rather than having to get involved get the muscles going get yourself a workout turn on the apple watch claim you're doing a strength and conditioning workout um <laughs> i put it i put it all in the food processor tipped in the three tablespoons of um of pineapple juice at the end through the nice little spout at the top and it made a very nice batter but it looked exactly the same consistency same coloring as your manual method of doing it so i don't think the food processor is key into the texture or the taste of this dish unsurprisingly no i wouldn't say so i thought this was a setup to go yeah, it was the food processor's fault that the cake fell apart at the end. <laughs> hey, you spoiled it. You revealed the spoiler of the cake falling to pieces at the end. So as we've mentioned through and I've I've ranted uh, ad nauseum over on uh, on social media, my whole cake baking process was fantastic. I made it with my daughter. It was all going really, really well. Went in the oven, bought it out of the oven, did the little... Uh, Little spike test to make sure nothing came back off on the spike to make sure it was cooked properly. Brilliant, nice. evenly cooked, very, very nice. Went to do the flip test. I had assistance right. to help me do the flip test, despite saying, No, 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 I will do this bit by myself because, you know, if it fails, then it's all on me. So, technically, it sounds like I'm making excuses. So, I should, I, even though I had assistance, I will take full responsibility. My ta-da moment to flip my pineapple upside down cake from the tin onto the plate was a failure, largely because of me. I flipped it, the plate underneath my tin slid, and a third of the cake ended up breaking off the side of my plate as I flipped it, and the rage in turn came in <laughs> made doubly worse by my wife who doesn't listen to the podcast so let's hope she doesn't listen this week as i'm sitting there cursing what had happened i look back over to the kitchen area where <laughs> the, the the bad flipping had occurred to see someone binge eating the broken bits of my pineapple up and down <laughs> cake before i had time to salvage it and take a picture there was certainly more flipping after that from my hand in her direction <laughs> <laughs> so what made you more angry is what I want to know. Was it breaking your Apple Watch in the drawer <laughs> or that your pineapple upside down cake came out not as well as you hoped? 
I mean, I have since replaced the Apple Watch, so now I'm furious about the pineapple upside down cake. <laughs> I mean, I'm furious about Hermes, but that's for a different, <laughs> different conversation oh, for a different that's, time. That's a different week, I think. Um, but but oh, the, the flipping, I couldn't believe it because the the color of the base of this pineapple upside down cake was like, oh my goodness, this looks incredible. Really happy with the layout of everything. Obviously, doing the flip, and I said a third of it came off, but the two thirds that were left on the plate looked great but one thing i noticed about your your um efforts your pineapple was very very yellow what type of pineapple what did you have a certain brand of pineapple that you used uh well i'll give give you a clue the man from dalmonte says yes he says yes does he oh i see because i used a supermarket own brand of pineapple and as it came out of the tin i thought to myself this is quite a pale yellow color it's not as exotic as you would see sort of people coloring these uh, obviously the man from del monte he says yes to the proper color of pineapple rather than the slightly <laughs> lucid uh version of the pineapple from a supermarket establishment he did and i i've heard and this might not be true but he personally checked the pineapple that went into my can as well because he knew we were going to be talking about it on a pod so yeah i've got the uh, best quality pineapple the best coloration and yeah it looked great because that's the thing i'd say from my standpoint and uh, we'll get on to to taste them in again difficult to gauge because i was looking at through rageful eyes of my broken <laughs> pineapple upside down cake or as i like to call it my pineapple on my cooker cake um <laughs> without having that very vibrant yellow of the pineapples that that you had from the man from del monte who also says yes and wears a lovely hat mm. um it didn't look as appealing because the pineapple wasn't bright so obviously where you've caramelized the top of the dish, which is lovely as well when you put the sugar on the base um, to start with, and then it does make a very nice caramelization on the pineapple itself. But without having that vibrancy, it just looked a bit, it looked a bit sad not using bright colored pineapple. I know it sounds silly to say bright colored pineapple, but if you will post the pictures on, um, on our Twitter and our Instagram um, when we release this podcast... But the difference between Matt's pineapple upside down cake, other than the fact it's in one piece, and mine, you can tell the <laughs> vibrancy of the colour in, in, in Matt's bake as opposed to mine. Um, so yours certainly looked more appealing because it was more aesthetically pleasing. And in one piece, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ignoring the fact that it's in one piece. Yeah, the pineapples, <laughs> it was the pineapples that made the difference. Uh, no, it, it, it's, it did make a difference, I think, or it can make a difference. Um, to that mindset of when you look at food how it is um presented which is a sad fact about you know like again going back to food waste why unusual looking fruit and veg gets chucked away rather than used and eaten uh but moving away from that again we having said that you know i looked at the picture on nigella's website and that looks exquisite like beautiful it's like a shiny top and it just looks so good and then again you always kind of constantly judging it someone else's efforts aren't you but compared to what i produce that's just studio perfect and it probably didn't have you know lighting and it's glossed up and things like that but yeah to get it right and to make it look as good as it can be is uh, quite an art in itself i think yeah i think this is definitely i mean the pictures from any cookbook obviously are going to benefit from professional photography of course but 
my cake if I'd served it up either to sell at a contest or even if you had people t- coming over and you're having lots of bits of cake, people probably wouldn't have looked twice at mine because it looked a little bit sad on the top. Um, g- assuming the two thirds which are in one piece would, was what was served. But I was really, really happy with the taste. I thought it was delicious. I was really, really happy. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it too. So I had this impression for some reason that one, it was going to be quite hard to make, which it wasn't particularly. I think, again, it just goes to prove that you can attempt these fun and interesting recipes in your own home and get some really good results, uh, unless it falls apart. But <laughs> <laughs> but also, too, just... Um, Again, I had this kind of impression it's quite an old-fashioned recipe, and for some reason I didn't think it would be quite suitable to my taste buds. I thought it might be quite soggy as well with the inclusion of the, the pineapple ring sitting on top and then that possibly leaching through to the, the sponge. But I didn't find that at all. It was, it was moist but not soggy. So I would, I really enjoyed it. And we've actually, uh, a day later as well, there's only two of us, so it's quite a bit of cake to go around between two. So we actually had some last night after our dinner um, as a dessert, I guess, with a cup of tea. And it's still okay then as well. So it does last as well. Um, but with uh, with the ingredients, just going back to the tinned aspect at the moment, Stuart, I'm quite curious about the, uh, the, the, the syrup inside. So it suggests that you use juice on the recipe. Yeah. So if you have pineapple rings that come in juice, that's better than if it comes in syrup uh i'm not sure i quite understand why or the difference there but what did you use or what did you have in your canned pineapple i had pineapple rings in juice so i had i put the three tablespoons of pineapple juice into the batter and it was really nice actually as you said it i was expecting to be quite soggy you wouldn't be able to pick it up and hold it as an actual slice Mm. of cake um my only memory of a pineapple upside down cake is from probably over a decade ago i met a friend in canterbury and the um the the cafe had a pineapple upside down cake so i had a slice of that and it just seemed very very dry so i was a bit like i wonder if this is going to dry out and as you said i had a a different thought process to you because obviously you thought it might be quite soggy i thought well obviously if if the pineapple's on the bottom it's not going to seep through so it's not it's not going to be on the top and the the liquid's going to seep through down into my sponge so, but I was really worried it was going to be quite dry because obviously you've got a naked top of it in the, in the cake tin. But yeah, I think texture-wise, it, again, the longevity of the cake, it still stayed soft, it still stayed moist, um, still had its structure to it, like two, three days later. So it's a cake that has lasted us quite a few days as well. So Harriet took a bit in her packed lunch to school. Um, I've been eating it on an ad hoc basis <laughs> since I had made it. <laughs> And well, so, yeah, you don't want to waste it. Well, exactly. And I also think that, as you said, it's got. I think it's got this sort of stigma being very old-fashioned and quite difficult to make. I was surprised at the ease of making this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, go on, go ahead. Well, other than you know, messing up at the end with the flip. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both in agreement that it was easy enough to bake. It was nice to eat. So... Would we bake it again? 
yes, because I need to prove a point and I need to do it properly and have a whole one. <laughs> I do wonder as well, because uh, obviously we both used um, square baking tins based mm. on, I assume it's just what we had, because all of my circular tins are, are, are pop through um, uh, t- tins. And I do wonder as well from the aesthetics of it, because uh, Nigella says she used a tart tatan tin. It's always fun <laughs> to try and say that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that obviously where we had it, so I obviously had to cut up some of my pineapple rings to fill in the gaps. Again, similar to what, what you had when you, you did yours in um in the square tin. I wonder again is if aesthetically again, it would be more pleasing in a circular motion because you obviously can have the rings around the outside. But I think, sorry, your effort looks very nice. My two thirds looks a bit sad because of the pineapple. I definitely <laughs> changed the type of pineapple I use. I think to make it more pleasing, um, it would be there. But from my standpoint, um, I don't like cherries, but I still use the glacé cherries, and mm-hmm. they're all right. It didn't it didn't hinder me enjoying the the cake by putting a glacé cherry in there. So very very happy. No, I think the flavour of the glacé cherry was dimmed slightly, and I don't mean that in a bad way by the cooking process, I suppose. So it, it, I find that flavour of a glacé cherry can be quite overpowering. I guess it's a bit of an odd sort of acquired taste, maybe. So I think the cooking process maybe took the edge off of that slightly. Um, but in terms of would I bake it again, I, I love baking, although uh, it doesn't always necessarily agree with my fitness goals at the time. And while I may not make this specific dish again for a while, at least anyway, uh, I would be keen to kind of challenge myself a bit more in the kitchen with baking cakes, etc. that I thought seemingly were perhaps unachievable so yeah it's given me that confidence to go out and do a bit more yeah and also thank you to everyone who's cooked this recipe this week and shared pitch with us um simon apologies it wasn't a dinner dish this week so you had to add something else to your meal planner but i'm glad you had your cake on your you know high calorie day so <laughs> excellent and i had a great effort cooking it great picture so thanks very much for for giving it a try and also thank you to everyone else who gave it a try if you do cook any of our recipes past or present Make sure you share them on our social medias. Again, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, at That Food Pod. We'd love to see what you cook. And as I said, if you check our social media platforms afterwards, you can see my disastrous, disastrous flip, <laughs> including the moment of half, well, a third of it hanging over onto my hob. And then I might even post a picture of my wife stealing my cake as I cry at the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so we're going to move on to our, our next feature. Um, which is to do with, as, as we mentioned earlier in the pod, healthy foods marketing. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier I've been looking into this uh, over the last week or so. And it was triggered by a couple of weeks ago on episode three, I think it was, of that food p- podcast. You, uh, Stu, you did a piece on, uh, as a part of your food and news segment, which you're talking about sugar-free soft drinks versus regular soft drinks. And how the sugar-free versions almost always have artificial sugar in, uh, sweetener, etc., uh, which helps go towards making it taste nicer. But this, in turn, could be more detrimental to your health than their natural sugar counterparts, potentially. Uh, so if you haven't heard that episode, go back to episode three and find out a bit more about that. Well, this set me off on a bit of a journey of how companies market food and the type of labeling they use so food ex- uh, food companies sorry, are experts at marketing their products in order to suggest they are healthy. Uh, they, are, they like to seduce 
the consumer with claims uh, such as no added sugar and low fat, which would lead to many of us uh, overestimating how healthy a food might be. But the reality is that it can often be a bit more complicated than that. So now this might, so let's have a look a bit of the background on this. This may differ from country to country, depending on where you're listening in from. So again, hello to our international listeners. We do appreciate you. Um, give us a like on social media and say hello. We would love to have someone from an international uh, listenership to cook one of our dishes. That'll be my, that's on my to-do list. So please say hello and uh, try one of our dishes and let us know. But in the UK and Europe, we're protected by law that dictates that labelling and presentation should not mislead the consumer. Uh, however, sometimes the guidance and definitions that go along with this are can be somewhat vague. So I thought it would be interesting today, Stu, for us to take a look at the terminology that we see all the time on front of food labelling. And we'll de delve a little bit deeper into the meaning behind this. So we'll start with one I'm sure that everyone's familiar with, regardless of what country you're from, from or your background. Uh, so superfood stew have you bought anything based on the fact that it's advertised as a superfood at all uh, i've not bought anything specifically because it's a superfood but as i mentioned on a previous pod a couple of years ago when me and my wife did something called the g plan diet it was very focused on these superfoods so things like cauliflower things like quinoa so we purchased them as part of following that recipe plan but it's very, but it seems to be every six months to a year you see this fad of a superfood. So we saw things like a jackfruit uh, last year, before obviously before COVID hit, where that's seeming to become a superfood that you can have as a meat replacement. It's great for you, and you can use it and form a barbecue burger or something. And then that that led to a massive fad of the jackfruit. Yeah, I had my first experience cooking with a jack, jackfruit uh, earlier this year, well, a few weeks ago now, and it was interesting but maybe that's for another pod um but if you have bought something in the past which uh because it's advertised as a superfood you're not alone so 61 percent of us have bought something because it's labeled as a superfood uh this is according to yougov the term superfood however has no accepted definition and zero regulatory approval needed to advertise as a superfood uh, it's generally used if the food happens to have a high concentration of something considered to be good for us, such as vitamin C, for example. Um, it's really more of a marketing word than a health one. But that's incredible. There's no regulation to it. That's in, that's already mental that that's in place. <laughs> yeah. So it's you can cut it. going back to labeling shouldn't mislead. So you can't claim it to be a superfood without any ability to be able to back that up however there, there's no yeah, regulation as such um but it is really more of a marketing word than a uh, defined health one um and as 61 percent of people have shown it does work it sells more products because it's got that superfood label make sure you listen to our superfood podcast that food podcast. <laughs> that's superfood podcast. <laughs> yeah. right, I mean, that's okay. that's remarkable, as you said. But it's it's the marketing spiel. It's the marketing spiel behind it that 
instantly people think they're being healthier and better off because they're buying a superfood. I remember the last thing that I remember seeing in like M&S and there was a superfood salad and things like edamame, it had sort of lots of different grains and beans in it, a bit of feta on top. And I looked at the price of like £4.50 for a little salad. But it's a superfood salad, so that's good. And I think you see it advertised in restaurants as well, superfood salad, superfood starter, and it and it makes people think, oh, I'm going for the healthy option because it's a superfood. It does, and we'll get to people going for the healthy option in a moment, but it does because it is a superfood or labelled as a superfood. They can potentially charge more as well, so it does enable businesses, food companies to uh, sell more at a higher price. Um, so we're going to move on from that to... No added sugar. So I'm sure everyone's seen drinks uh, with no added sugar on the front of the packaging, amongst other things. Um, But this doesn't necessarily guarantee a low sugar content, like many of us might be led to believe. Companies use fruit juice concentrate as a sweetener instead of sugar. Now, the workaround here is that fruit juice concentrate doesn't have to be labeled as sugar so they don't need to put added sugar in fact they can put no added sugar Um, so as we've already discussed like low sugar uh, zero sugar food and drinks often contain artificial sweetener no added sugar will often have a uh, substitute in the form of fruit juice which obviously heightens the sweetness uh, but also heightens how many calories you're intaking Uh, so Again, even though on the surface of things it looks healthy, it's not necessarily. And it's interesting you mentioned especially the no added sugar route because I know a lot of parents, when they look for drinks for toddlers, young children, they look at the no added sugar squash because they go, oh, well, no added sugar, this is going to be better for their teeth, this is going to be better for them if we're going to give them a drink other than other than water and again don't get me wrong i'm not saying that people shouldn't give their children squash my daughter has squash from time to time as well it's not preaching saying no one should drink squash but it is really interesting when you combine that and some research which um we'll get to on another pod which harbors sort of diet and the ability to have metabolism and weight loss where your diet is impacted in your early years so for example you said the actual sugar intake for someone who's three and four that can have lasting effects for their whole life they could get to the age of 30 and live the cleanest diet possible but if they have sort of this too much sugars in the early years they're never going to be able to shake that ability they're never going to form that sort of adjust that genetic structure within them um, as they go on older based on some of these research papers so the no added sugar concept is a massive one when it comes to especially looking at drinks and those who are of younger ages as well yeah and as i was writing this i was actually thinking of you and uh, young harriet too and i was wondering you know what your take on this is and it's not only just forming the you know w- what they take into their body and potentially affecting you know their weight as they grow older but it's also forming habits as well so the habit of having a sweetened uh, drink what have you so a lot of things that we eat and drink in adulthood is similar, um, if not exactly the same, to things that we might have as a child because we kind of grow into that habit and we, we, we pick up things that our parents did for us and we'll kind of pass it on to our own children as well. Um, okay, we've got a couple more of these. There's loads of these, but we'll just do two more just to kind of wrap up. 
Uh, reduced fat. So the next few are going to be kind of looking at fats and things like that in food and and fats as as uh, fat and then saturated fat, which is a whole different big topic we can get into at a different time. So I'm just going to keep this real simple. Um, we'll just we'll just use the word fat for now. Uh, so reduced fat. This must be at least 25% lower than the fat in the original product. So bearing that in mind, Stu, what do you think the problem might be with that? Well, first of all, how are you reducing the original fat content of the the concept of the products you're having? And more importantly, what is being replaced? What is replacing the fats to keep maintain the flavor or the integrity of the product you're purchasing with the reduced levels of fat? Yeah, exactly. So we can look at reducing the fat by 25%. But if that product is already high in fat or extremely high in fat, then 25% less fat may still result in a high fat content. Uh, but also, as you touched on there, quite correctly there, Stu, uh, other ingredients are added, such as sugars and salts, to uh, add or maintain the taste. But also, as a result of that, it maintains the amount of calories involved as well. So it's not always the healthy option to go for a reduced fat um, product which again it kind of goes back to that marketing they they put labels on food for us to be enticed by the potential of it being healthy at times so one to finish up and then i just got a little bit of a a quick game for you this week um so low fat we're looking at that now so we've had reduced fat and again there's so many different versions of these things you know they all kind of mean similar things but slightly different and we've got low fat or light versions of familiar food products. So low fat doesn't always equal healthy necessarily. Uh, But in the UK, uh, this label means that products must have less than three grams of fat per 100 gram. But again, when producers take out fat, they often pile in sugar to, again, maintain the flavor. Whereas light, for example, doesn't have any specific guidelines. So if you look back at the superfood example I gave you earlier. There's no specific guidelines for this, but as a general rule, as long as it doesn't mislead consumers, as a general rule, it contains fewer calories and or fat per serving of the original product that it's the light version of. Um, either way, as I mentioned earlier, however, the companies you know, interpret the way that they interpret light uh, when labeling it on their packaging ultimately mustn't mislead a consumer so whilst there is some truth to it it might not always you know amount to much once you add in the sugar as well so i've actually got a couple of examples here um, just to give you some sort of context guys so just a real simple one here and again i'm just going to keep carbs as carbs and fats as fats or sugars as sugars what have you Um, tesco's greek style yogurt the regular version per 100 grams the fat content in that is 9.5 grams per 100 grams of serving okay whereas in the low fat it's 2.6 grams so a considerable difference there so there is indeed less fat great but then if you look down the label slightly a few columns below or a few rows below you have the carb content or sugars when you look at that it's quite startling how much additional sugar is added into these products. So carbs or sugars in regular product has 5.5 grams in, 
per 100 gram, whereas the low fat content, and this is the, the shocker really, it goes all the way up to 7.2 grams per 100 gram. So you are looking at a, quite a considerable increase. Holy moly. And when you're looking at your recommended intake per day, on paper, so like you, you said there, so you've got an extra 1.75 grams per 100, 100 grams of yogurt. So, so if you go, oh, well, 1.7 grams, that's not much. If you weigh it on the scales, you go, oh, that's not much. But again, like we've said before about cereals, you may not have 100 grams or 100 ml of yogurt. You might have half the pot. So if you're looking at half the pot, you're looking already at uh, 35, 36 grams of the low-fat version. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, which you're over halfway there of your uh, recommended daily allowance at that point, uh, which is 70 grams. So, yeah, easily you can pick up your you know, uh, amount of intake that you should be having each day. Uh, okay, Stu, so one last example before we get into the big reveal for next week's recipe. Do you have a favourite biscuit at all, Stu? I am a fan of the chocolate hobnob. Good choice. Solid choice. Excellent. Would you ever go for a uh, McVitie's digestive biscuit at all? I will be for the ease of what example you've probably got ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, again, a digestive. A top people, people go, oh, a digestive. I'll just have that dunk in my tea. Because they go, oh, well, it doesn't have chocolate on it. It seems to be a healthy biscuit. Biscuits are okay in moderation. No biscuit is a healthy biscuit. Uh, no, and as we're about to find out, that's uh, quite the statement. It's very true. So a regular biscuit, just one biscuit this is. Uh, so it weighs about 17 grams per biscuit roughly in a regular mcvitie's digestive biscuit there is 3.1 grams of total fat in a light version of that so again one biscuit of 17 grams there is 2.1 grams of uh, fat content which is again there's a drop there by one gram and you notice that they call and i should highlight this really they call these light biscuit not low fat because it doesn't meet that requirement of being uh three grams per 100 gram uh in their in their uh, ingredients so bear in mind this information here and this kind of goes towards how to read labels properly this is per biscuit rather than per 100 gram so you think oh 2.1 grams per biscuit that's not bad but actually when you scale that up to that kind of 100 gram ratio that we're using with the yogurt uh that does scale up quite considerably so then we look at carbs. Again, it's the same story. So the carbs or the sugars in the regular biscuit is 9.3. In the light version, it jumps up to 10.3. So again, you can see that kind of comparison. So the point here really is it's just important to be able to kind of give yourself good information. Try to read around the product as well that you're buying. Uh, if you are, or if you do happen to be conscientious enough to uh, want to care about what you put into your body or you know, even if you're unfortunate enough to have a health condition where this is potentially quite serious, just look at how to read labels and to get the best information out of them. And actually next week, what I'm going to touch on, Stu, is how to read some nutrition labels properly. Uh, this includes the traffic light system, which you might see on the front of boxes and how they do and don't work. And then also the tables on the back of the the product that you're buying as well so we can kind of have a bit more information and maybe make some more informed choices when we're buying our food in the future 
There's also no such thing as a light biscuit unless it's a bit more buoyant and floating in your tea if it breaks. So like the full fat digestive would sink to the bottom of your cup. Maybe the light one would float <laughs> on top is where I'm, where I'm at. I mean, if, if you're going to have a biscuit, and here's the thing, and I bet in all that tons and tons, millions of tons of food waste we have every year, I bet, no, bet very little of that is biscuits. Because people will, regardless of it's a biscuit, I'll have a biscuit. And like you said here, like with the digestives, that's per digestive about 17 grams a biscuit. Yep. So let's round up to 20 just to make it easier for maths. On that low fat one, sorry, the lighter choice, you're looking yes. at... <laughs> at 65 grams of carbs yeah. and, and that's and you ne- five grams away you never have and just no, one no you'll have two three twice a day <laughs> and then you're done <laughs> and it, it's it's yeah. incredible when 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 you look at it so yeah it's going to be really interesting next week to the, the reading because obviously again when people look at these traffic light labels they go green that's going to be absolutely fine for me to eat lots of so it's going to be really interesting <laughs> to to delve into that in a bit more detail so Obviously, we're nearing the end, and it is your week to pick the recipe. So where are we going? What are we going to be cooking? Well, uh, as of recording this uh, episode, Wales celebrated St. David's Day earlier in the week. So with this in mind, and as a way to show there aren't any hard feelings uh, following England's, England's defeat in the Six Nations rugby at the weekend... My chosen recipe this week comes all the way from the land of the red dragon and the daffodil, Wales. So for this week's recipe, I have chosen a dish I tried for the very first time in February of last year, I think it was, uh, when visiting friends near the beautiful coastal town of Tembe. If you ever get a chance to visit there, I would highly recommend it. I tried this dish, uh, which is a type of broth in a restaurant. Do you remember those places, Stu? I remember a restaurant, and I am a big fan of a broth, so I'm excited to see what we're going to be cooking. This is going to be great. Okay. So far, so good. And it was delicious. It was really, really nice, very memorable as well. It's one of those occasions uh, where we're in a nice restaurant with good friends, and we had good food, so happy days. So my recipe of the week is call as C-A-W-L. L, or more specifically, Michael Sheen's traditional Welsh Welsh call, uh, the, the famous Welsh actor, not to be confused with the uh, famous American actor, Martin Sheen. And I found this recipe on Jamie Oliver's website. So can you think of the social media tags this week, Stu? <laughs> olive oil. <laughs> That's what the social media tags are. All the olive oil from Jamie Oliver and his <laughs> olive oil deals. Just put some olive oil on that and some more olive oil on that. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think we could tag in Michael Sheen and Jamie Oliver, but yeah, okay, we could tag yeah, <laughs> Olive Oil too if you want. <laughs> Bert Olive so and the other is... Olive Oil companies. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is our uh, first soup dish on the pod, which, having read about it a little bit and tried it, I know to be it is hearty and filling and is by all accounts really simple to make. However, there are a couple of potentially unusual requirements. Uh, so firstly, one of the ingredients is lamb's neck, which I will be contacting my butcher about to be able to see if I can source some lamb's neck. And on Jamie's website, it does say that you can eat this straight away. But having done some reading around the dish, it seems like it might be best served the following day. 
Uh, from a personal standpoint, I'm interested to see if this can live up to my memory of the version of the dish that I had in Wales. Um, but how about you, Stu? Are you a fan of soup? Have you tried call before? And I actually, as a side, so you get your bread as well as you do with your soups and broths, um, but it also suggests that you have a side of kafili cheese as well. So I know you're a big fan of cheese. So hopefully this ticks all the boxes for you. All in. And I've been wanting for a while to make bread with Harriet. So I think I'm going to make my own bread to go with this as well and make a proper thing Ooh. of it. Nice idea. If you do decide to, drop it on the uh, socials and I might have a go as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love all things broth. I love all things soup. Um, similar to you, if it's a lamb's neck, I'm going to call my local butcher at Quex Bar to say, do you have any? Could I have some, please? Which I'm going to do shortly after we get off this pod to make sure I can pick some up at the weekend. Probably not a dish I'm going to try with my daughter as a whole because she even anything soup she doesn't like. She has tried some oxtail soup, which she refers to as gravy soup, which she was <laughs> indifferent with. And she tried leek and potato the other day, which she wasn't a fan of. She's, she's a tomato soup girl, which also therefore means you have to avoid any form of clothing and set up some tarpaulin around the <laughs> kitchen just to protect all the sides. So I think I might just do this for me and Leanne. But also, as you said, if it's something that's going to be, I assume, based on sort of broth's broth history... Um, you will cook, you will leave to sit for a day to, uh, for my late father's terminology, to fester for 24 hours and reheat and ah. serve. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so that's my the, understandings. So the good thing is that this could be cooked at any time. So for example, on a lunch break, because I'm still working from home at the moment, I can cook it on my lunch break. I can leave it until the next day. So I can do the cooking, it's done. That's dinner sorted for the next day. And also, as it's a broth, suitability for freezing portion it up, put it in the freezer, reheat for another day. Yes, Marvelous. and that goes back to our thing earlier about not wasting food, and we're total professionals, yay! <laughs> it's almost like the flow of this podcast getting better, and especially when we comment how good we are at our flow, <laughs> it makes us even more <laughs> professional. <laughs> but yes. I think... When you point things out, yeah, that's much better. <laughs> it's like having to explain your jokes, which I do on a regular basis to try and justify oh, why they're funny. Yeah. <laughs> but i think uh this is going to be really interesting and again it's um going to give us a good opportunity again looking at the history of the food um from wales as well we're going to be looking at food in the news we're going to continue on um our segments looking at the nutritional value of these food labels of our traffic light system so again if you've enjoyed what you've listened to this week uh leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice interact with us like follow engage with us on our social media platforms twitter facebook and instagram at that food pod uh we're very active on there if you comment we will get back to you if you follow us hey if you're a chef if you like cooking we'll follow you back we'll do what you need us to do we want to engage with our listeners we're very grateful of those who've got involved so far very grateful for the listenership we've had so far and obviously want to continue growing bring you more interesting things if there are features you like that we cover let us know if there are features you hate if you hate food in the news i'll stop doing it just let me know (laughs) at that food podcast sorry at that food pod on twitter um and i'm looking forward to cooking call for next week that's gonna be awesome yeah just to mirror Stu's uh message there thanks very much guys we seem to have this core group of people that listen each week and the numbers are very consistent which is very promising Obviously, we'd like to see them continue to grow as well. And thank you to everyone who's listened. Please get in touch. I know there's more of you out there that listen than get in touch. So please say hello. We are very social and we'd love to hear from you, especially if you are cooking the dishes. So thanks very much. Check us out on That Food Pod across all platforms now. 
It makes us sound like such professionals. We've we've learned how to use social media in our late thirties. Sorry, mid late thirties. <laughs> cool. Well, um, also if you want to follow us individually, um, I'm at the Stuart Miller on Twitter. And, and I am. I am at Coach Wicked on Twitter. But the best place to follow us, as we said, is at that food pod. Uh, see our recipes, see our cooking disasters in my case, see what we cook during the week. Um, <laughs> and we will see you next week where we'll be cooking a call. Wonderful. See you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.